reading in the book of John. Now, the last time we were here, we were finishing up the end of chapter three, dealing with John the Baptist's last testimony concerning Jesus. Now, we're not going to go through all of that, but basically the idea was Jesus and John were both baptizing not far from each other. A particular man saw how Jesus was baptizing and he was actually baptizing more than John the Baptist. And so he began to question John's disciple as to if John had pointed out Jesus to be the Messiah, why then was he continuing in his own ministry to baptize? And so therefore we were allowed to see a bit of overlap in the ministry of John the Baptist as it was coming to an end and the increasing ministry of Jesus. And so John simply validated the point that his ministry indeed was decreasing and it was necessary for Jesus's ministry since he is the Messiah for his ministry to increase. And John let him know that I told you from the beginning, I was not the Christ. I was not the Messiah. And so therefore, these things should be expected of the Messiah. And then finally, John styled his continuing presence in the ministry of Jesus, or should I say, alongside with the ministry of Jesus in the sense of one being a friend of the bridegroom. Jesus himself being the bridegroom and the bride being the growing number of peoples who are coming to faith that Jesus is the Messiah. And John, as the friend of the bridegroom in the wedding, is happy to see the bridegroom and the bride united in such a fashion. And so this, for the most part, ends John's testimony. And we're going to stop right there because we want to move into chapter four, where we begin a very narrative and long section, but dealing with that, uh, the woman at the well. So without any further ado, let's just simply go into that. Uh, John chapter four, here we go. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more dis disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again into Galilee. Okay, so now we are at the point where the Lord, we are continuing that same issue of baptizing, Jesus baptizing along with John the Baptist baptizing. But here is clarification that Jesus did not actually baptize anyone. His disciples did the actual baptism and Jesus primarily directed the baptism. And one of the reasons for this is that is because the baptism of Jesus is for a future date. This would be, be after the resurrection of Jesus, after his death and resurrection then you will have the baptism of Jesus. That is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus will talk about that even. Matter of fact, he has alluded to that already with that conversation with Nicodemus. He'll talk about that again in John chapter seven, I believe it is seven or eight. Once again, talking about the spirit's baptism, who he who believes on me, as the scripture says, 
out of his inward parts shall flow rivers of living water. This he spoke of as the Holy Spirit. So he'll talk about that even more so. But the idea is the baptism of Jesus involvement involves the Holy Spirit itself that baptizes, that brings the individual to faith and brings that individual into the body of Christ. But nevertheless, let's just stay right here. It's long enough. Uh, Jesus did not baptize. His baptism would be of the spirit. His disciples did the baptizing. And so now we see Jesus preparing to leave from the region of Judea and go back north to Galilee. Now, we'll talk about certain uh, external formalities as we move through the text because it is important, but not right here. We just simply want you to see how Jesus is desiring and preparing to move from where he was baptizing in that region of Judea northward back into Galilee. Okay. Verse number four, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, so now we're looking at Verse four, he said he had to pass through Samaria. Now, it is very important that you understand the actual word he had to pass through uh, a day, a day or come from the word day. That is the Greek word day, which means it is necessary. It is necessary. So there is a spiritual import to this term. It is necessary that is being implied because it was the will of the father. That's the implication. It is of divine nature, divine origin, the divine will of God that Jesus should pass through Samaria. Now, even as I speak about these things, understand the import of how it actually connects with the rest of it, all right, with the rest of the text itself. Speaking to the woman, the woman is actually a Samaritan, and all of the history behind it. And then God is saying to his son, God is directing him, you must pass through Samaria. Now, the, the thing that's important about the passing through Samaria is this. When the Jews, first of all, you have to understand the relationship of the Jews and the Samaritan. You'll see that brought out even later on in the text. But still, we need to get some type of an insight with it. All right. Going all the way back and we can't do all of the history. OK, but we know that the Jews judged by God because of their sins, primarily idolatry were sentenced to 70 years in Babylonian exile. After the 70 years were complete, God began to deliver the Jews back to the promised land, to bring them back into the land again. We see several people involved like Nehemiah, and then you'll see Ezra, uh, the, the prophet, the priest, Ezra the priest involved in such things. And then you'll see Zechariah, you'll see Haggai. These were people who were involved in the reestablishing of the nation once again. 
All right. Now, but even approximately 100 years before the Jews, that is Jerusalem and Judah were exiled into Babylon, the north part of Israel was invaded by the Assyrians, which you have to understand. And, we, and again, there's so much history involved, but it goes all the way back to the time of Rehoboam, actually because of Solomon's disobedience. But it happened in the term of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, that the kingdom was split. At first, David had united the kingdom of Israel. That is, all 12 tribes were united under him. But because of Solomon's sin, that is engaging in idolatry, the marrying of those wives, building the temples uh, to their idol gods to please the wives. God was angry with Solomon and he ripped 10 of those tribes away from Solomon and gave it to someone else. And these 10 tribes became known as the northern kingdom or Israel, or sometimes referred to by their capital, Ephraim. Okay, so the north. Then the other two, that is Judah and Benjamin, came to came together as Judah or Jerusalem. And it was this part that was ruled by the son of David. And this is what we see. And this was Judah, Jerusalem, that was sent into the Babylonian exile. But what I'm referring to now is those 10 tribes that remain as the northern kingdom, Israel, sometimes called uh, Ephraim, and even at other times would be known as Samaria at certain points. But the north, a uh, hundred years before the judgment of Judah, was judged by the Assyrians. God sent the Assyrians to judge them. Okay. And so the Northern kingdom was destroyed. Now, even though their kingdom was destroyed and they had no uh, Jewish king per se over them, the Jewish people remained in the land. What the Assyrians did in order to keep any form of nationalism from developing amongst those Jews that remained in the land was they would take other peoples from other nations, Gentiles, and they would bring them into Israel. And what these Jews who were once Northern Israelites, all right, from Israel, they intermarried with these people and in their intermarriage with these people, they also developed and incorporated some of their culture as well as some of their idolatrous thinking and behavior. All right. So now we have a mixed group of people here. Jews intermarried with these Gentiles, that is uh, from the north Israel. And this intermarriage of Jew and Gentile is what made the people the Samaritans, the Samaritans. OK, now let's move forward again. Judah is destroyed because of her uh, idolatry. Seventy years exile, return back from exile, Ezra, Nehemiah. And then we see the building of the temple, the rebuilding of the temple. Haggai, Zechariah, Zerubbabel, the governor. 
Now, it was during this time when the Jews of Judah returned back from the captivity that these Israelites from the north, the Samaritans, when these Jews came back, they began to build the second temple. These Israelites, the, remember the Samaritans, wanted to participate in the building up in the building of the temple with the Jews who had returned from the Babylonian exile. However, the Babylonian Jews, exiled Jews who returned, did not permit this mixed Jew Gentile, the Samaritans, to participate in the building of the temple. And this, along with other things, created a long lasting hostility between the Samaritan, those Israelite, northern Israelite mixed with Gentile, Assyrian, this, these Jews, it was a long standing issue between them and the Jews who returned from the Babylonian exile. Okay, so what you have to see is basically the Samaritans, Jew Gentile mixture. Northern Israel wanted to participate in the rebuilding of the temple. Once the Jews got back from the Babylonian exile, they were not permitted to do so. And they became antagonistic against those Jews, even up until the time of Jesus. Okay. And so, um, I guess I might as well tell you, and when we get to certain parts of it, you'll understand it. So they were not allowed to participate in the building of the second temple. And it was the second temple that Herod refurbished. Now go back and look at some of the teachings that I've already did in the, in the book of John, uh, when Jesus gave this point, and I don't want to get into all of that, but he talked about the temple of his body. When Jesus cleansed the temple, destroyed this temple and I will resurrect it in three days. They thought he was talking about the temple that was being refurbished by Herod. Okay. And they said it took 46 years. So the second temple was the temple that they built when they returned from exile, they began building on the temple, should I say, refurbishing on the Herod, okay? Again, once again, even in Jesus' day. Bump. So, all right, that's cool. So, because these, let's go back to the Samaritans, all right? The Israelites from the Assyrians, destruction mixed with the Gentiles, Samaritans. Always think about that. Sometimes like half Jew, half Gentile, so to speak, all right? But the whole point was they had adopted these Gentile, certain Gentile beliefs and practices, and they were antagonistic against the Jews who returned from Babylon. So since the Babylonian Jews who built the second temple did not permit these Samaritans to uh, join along with them and build the temple, the Samaritans therefore sought to build their own temple. And they built their temple of worship as a rival temple against the temple in Jerusalem. Okay, so in building their temple, the Samaritan place of worship, that it was basically a rival. Who has the true place of worship? What temple is truly the temple of God? And even the Samaritans took the five books of Moses, the five books of Moses, 
and created their own five books of Moses. However, their books of Moses, which is not, which is called, became known as the Samaritan Pentateuch. The Samaritan Pentateuch was identical to the Jews book, uh, five books of Moses, with the exception that every place in the Pentateuch of Moses that the Jews had kept, the Samaritans that mentioned Jerusalem or the temple, they changed each of those places to reflect the temple at Mount Gerizim and worship on Mount Gerizim. So basically it is the same, the Samaritan Pentateuch, as well as the law of Moses that these Jews maintain, the Babylonian Jews maintain. Same, but the only exception or difference was whenever you mentioned Jerusalem, they would mention Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. And whenever the law of Moses would mention the temple in Jerusalem, they would mention the temple upon Mount Gerizim. So that was the only difference. Okay, but what you need to understand, there was great antagonism between them. Now, let's get back into the text. Jesus, it is necessary for him to pass through Samaria. So now let's talk about the geography. Normally, because of the antipathy and the antagonistic behavior between the Jew and the Gentile, the, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't like each other. Whenever a Jew, whenever a Jew uh, would go from the from the south, Judea, to the north, Galilee. They will go around Samaria so that they won't have any anything to do with Samaria. They would always go around Samaria. And this is why we see it is so important that it says what Jesus had to go through Samaria. So this was kind of mm, one of those points. Why is he going through Samaria when traditionally the Jews would always go around Samaria? And let me just give you another point. The Samaritans did not like Jews passing through their land, especially if the Jews were going, say, for instance, from the north uh, uh, to Jerusalem. And you, all, you would always say up to Jerusalem, OK, even though it's in the south, you would still say up to Jerusalem. But if a Jew was coming from the north and coming to Jerusalem to worship, the Samaritans would not permit any Jew to pass through their land to go to Jerusalem. However, if a Jew was returning from worship or returning from Jerusalem to any other place and passing through the Samaritan land, they would allow it. So again, notice the whole issue is the place of worship, place of worship that they had with the Babylonian returning Jews and then the overall antipathy that they both had for one another. Okay, now with all of that history, let's get back into the text. So Jesus, back at verse number four, he had to pass through Samaria so we know that it was under divine uh, uh, um, intent, divine influence. It is God's mind that he should pass through Samaria. So he came to a place called Sychar, where the well of Jacob was there. That is the well that Jacob gave Joseph, which is the ancient era of Shechem. And we're not going to get into all of that, but he came to a place of a well in ancient Shechem. And so there 
He was there. And notice in verse number six, let me just bring this point out. Jesus was wearied from his journey and sat by the well. The beautiful thing that you have to understand is even though Jesus is God almighty. And what is the theme of the book of John? Jesus is God. In the beginning was the word where was with God, where it was God, where it was made flesh. But, and that is son of God, that title, son of God. But also Jesus is a man, son of man, that title, which means Jesus is human. So we can see here a clear depiction of his humanity, just like any other man, or even I can say just like you and me. Jesus got tired and needed to rest so we see here the evidence of his humanity as well as we see throughout John, the evidence of his divine person. He is both what? God and man. So Jesus, weary from his journey, set by the well, and it said it was about the sixth hour. And I believe in Romans time, that should be about 6 p.m. Jewish time, prop 12 PM, but I believe we're going in accordance to Roman time. And I think that's about 6 PM. So about 6 PM, Jesus now is sitting by the well. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink for his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I am a woman, a Samaritan woman, for the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, so now let's talk about it. So now he is there and he meets a woman and Jesus begins a conversation with the woman by asking her to give him a drink. Now, again, what you have to understand are the customs during that particular time and how people acted towards one another during that particular time. And there were two primary things that you have to understand. Number one, we, okay, Jesus is the Christ, son of God, all right? But in the eyes of people, in the eyes of the people around him, yeah, he's the Messiah, but he is a rabbi. He is a Jewish rabbi, that is a Jewish teacher. One thing that a Jewish rabbi did not do, remember, there's two points. One thing is speak to a woman in public. Jewish rabbis would not speak to women in public, less known, actually engage, start the conversation itself. So that's an odd thing to see Jesus engaging with this particular woman in a public discourse. Number two, the woman was a Samaritan. We've already gone through all of that history and we understand, as the text says, Jews and Samaritans don't have anything to do with one another. So on two levels, Jesus, a rabbi speaking to a woman and then Jesus, the Jew speaking and dealing with a Samaritan. Both of them would be traditional no-nos at that time. OK, and then the scriptures let us know 
at Jesus, uh, it kind of it, it gives explanation as why as he's saying it to the woman. But there's more than just simple explanation. Of course, there is a spiritual explanation behind it. But nevertheless, the disciples had departed, going into town to buy food. And this was even necessary. Why? In order for Jesus to engage in the conversation that he needed with to engage with, with this woman, it was needful for the disciples to be gone, as we will see when they get back. The negative attitudes that they will have with Jesus speaking to this woman. They're going to be very negative about it. They don't want it to happen. So all of this is happening according to the divine plan of God. Disciples gone. Jesus need to go to Samaria engage in a conversation with this particular woman and something else that I want you to realize. Now notice the time, whether 12 p.m. Jewish time or 6 p.m. Roman time, the woman was at the well to draw water. What is important to understand about this is women did not traditionally come in the afternoon or even evening time, afternoon, very hot, especially to draw water. The women would draw their water from the well in the morning. But this woman is coming later in the evening to draw her water so as to miss the congregation of women who would normally come at the well. And since I'm here, I might as well tell you about it. Because we're gonna, Jesus is going to talk about it. We know, no, 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 we know. Jesus is going to talk about this woman and the type of immoral life that she has lived and is living. So therefore, she doesn't want to congregate with a bunch of talking women. She's embarrassed because of her own life choices to be and congregate with the other women of the town. So she chooses to come when the other people are not there because of the awful lifestyle that this woman has chosen for herself. And at the same time, it is because of this awful lifestyle, we are able to see a beautiful spiritual truth about the election of God, whom God chooses to save. Remember, what did Jesus say? He had to go there. And of course, we, Jesus knew what would develop when he got there. It would yield the salvation of this woman. God saves whom he chooses and he saves even the worst of us. And that's another point that you have to see in this particular lesson. But we were a little premature, but let's work through the scriptures so this doesn't have to be as long. All right. But so the woman, seeing that Jesus asked her for a drink of water, she was somewhat taken aback and said, you're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You asking me for a drink of water? And then that's when we see those additional notes for Jews and Samaritans had nothing to do with one another. Verse 10, Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? So Jesus continues the conversation and simply said, if you knew the gift of God. Now, the, the, the conversation, Jesus has elevated the con conversation to a spiritual dimension. 
He began in a physical dimension, regular water to drink. He knew how the woman would respond in a physical, in a, with a physical response in a negative way. And that she did. And now Jesus elevates it to speak not of physical water, but spiritual water. But in the conversation, if you knew the gift of God, the gift of God that he is speaking about and that we see primarily even in the New Testament is the gift of salvation. So now he ties the coming of the spirit. Well, what does the spirit do? It baptizes you into the body of Jesus Christ. It gives you faith to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Having faith to believe that Jesus is Messiah, you are saved. How does such a one get this gift? Faith is a gift from God. Salvific. That's when you hear that term salvific, salvific faith. Salvific faith means nothing more than faith to believe. Faith to believe is a gift from God. So Jesus opens it. If you knew the gift of God, and then he says, not only if you knew the gift of God, that is salvation faith, but who it is who says to you. Now he speaks of himself as the Messiah. In other words, you don't understand that I'm speaking to you in spiritual terms now, and I can give you this gift of God. Why? Because I am the Messiah, which takes us all the way back to the baptism of Jesus. What? His disciples baptized. Jesus did not baptize because his baptism would be spiritual. If you knew who it was who says to you to give me a drink, you would have turned knowing that I am the Messiah. You would have asked the Messiah to give you a drink and he, the Messiah, would have given you living waters, the living waters of salvation. If you knew who I really was, You'd have asked me for water, but you'd have asked me for the waters of salvation, such waters that only the Messiah can give. Okay, and so she responded. The woman is still thinking in a physical realm. She considers the well. She considers the water. She looks at Jesus and she she recognizes he has nothing to draw with, and she also knows the well is deep. So, okay. You got a deep well and you don't have anything to draw with. So how in the world are you going to give me this so-called living water? Not understanding that Jesus is speaking in spiritual terms. She still speaks on a physical level. She's thinking about natural water. Verse 12. You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Okay, so now <laughs> Jesus again remaining in the spiritual realm, the woman remaining in the physical realm. She doesn't understand Jesus is speaking to her spiritually. So she begins to say in verse number 12, 
she ties on a relationship factor between Jews and Samaritans. So you got to catch that part. In other words, you know, you Jews think you're all of this. You Jews think you're more than we are. But the truth of the matter is we share a common ancestry. We share a common father, even Jacob. As Jacob is the father of you Jews, he is also the father of us Samaritans. And now you can see where it says, you are not greater than our father, Jacob. In other words, there's nothing special about you that you should be able to give us this water. You should be able to give me this water to drink from this well that Jacob, his sons, and his cattle drink. That's the relationship factor. But Jesus continues on with the spiritual point and says, everybody who simply drinks of water that comes from this well will thirst again. This is just physical water. It's not in comparison to the water that I'm offering you. The water that I'm offering you, once you drink it, you will never thirst again, but it will become a water, a well of water that will constantly be nourishing you, constantly be filling you, constantly be refreshing you, even to eternal life. And that's the idea that Jesus speaks on the spiritual realm, that the water that he gives, he contrasts that with the physical water that the woman is talking about, simply saying a well of water springing to eternal life. So Jesus makes it clear that now the water he is able to give, gives eternal life. So it is clear, spiritual, but the woman is still slow. She can't get it. She still thinks in physical term about physical water. So she says to Jesus in response, if you can give me this kind of water that I never thirst again, okay, fine. Give me this water so I won't ever be thirsty and not come to this well again. So number one, she won't ever be thirsty. Number two, she doesn't have to come to the well again or even risk the embarrassment. Here's when we get about to get into it, the revelation of the embarrassment, okay? The reason why this woman would come to the well in the evening or afternoon instead of in the morning when all the rest of the women would come to the well. So Jesus now has to shock her out of her physical way of thinking and bring her into the realm of the spiritual way that he is talking about. And how does he do this? He does a clear spiritual act. He prophesies. And now let's get into that. So Jesus said to the woman, when she says, okay, fine, give me this water. He says, 16, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Okay. So now this is how Jesus shocks her out of her, uh, 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 physical thinking and brings her into the spiritual realm. He tells the woman, okay, fine. If you want this water that I can give you that springs to eternal life, like I said, go get your husband, come here, and then I'll give it to you. And so the woman replies in shame, in shame, but she's trying to hide it. 
I have no husband. I am not married to a husband. And what she's leaving off is legally married. And so now Jesus finishes that which she leaves off. He knows the mind and the heart of man. And he knows the mind and heart of this woman and the secrets of her past. And so he says, correct. You have had five husbands. And that means you've had five husbands and five divorces. And the one that you're living with is not legally, you're not legally married to your husband. You are living in sin. You are living in an immoral relationship as we speak. Or with the word that's in my mind, you shacking. <laughs> yeah. So Jesus used a spiritual device, that is, he prophesied, woman, get this physical water out of your mind and start thinking spiritually. He gives this spiritual act to elevate the woman's mind from the physical to the spiritual. And then he just simply says, uh, truly, this you said, you told the truth about this, having no husband. 19, now the woman is ready. Now she understands she has she has now been elevated by our Lord from the physical to the spiritual. And now the conversation will be spiritual on both sides. But it's going to be a, an attempt for a slight U-turn. So let's look at it. 19. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive you are a prophet. Our fathers worship in this mountain and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Okay, so now she's ready. She's thinking, thinking spiritually. She says, mm, oh, okay, I didn't know that when I first saw you. You didn't know what? You're a prophet. Okay, fine, and you're a prophet. Then answer this question for me. Now, what the woman has, is trying to do is duck and dodge. Jesus made her thoroughly uncomfortable when he mentioned her sexually immoral past, her adulterous past and her present, her sexually immoral present. The one you living with, you ain't married to him either. So she's extremely uncomfortable and she tries to change the conversation. She says, oh, OK, OK, let's not talk about me anymore. Answer, answer me this since you're a prophet. So she tries to change the subject. But nevertheless, let's look at what she said. And when she said, our fathers worship in this mountain. The, remember when I just gave you all of that history, that's the reason why I gave it. She is a Samaritan. When she says this mountain, she is referring to the Samaritan place of worship, Mount Gerizim, over against the Jerusalem place of worship, that is the temple in Jerusalem. So she remember the Samaritans, they built a rival temple. They built a rival worship system. There's Mount Gerizim over against Jerusalem. And the Samaritans believe theirs were right. So now she goes to Jesus. Since you are a prophet, answer me this. Where is the rightful place to worship? Where we worship? the Samaritans in Mount Gerizim or where the Jews worship in Jerusalem. Okay. And so now Jesus begins to answer that question about worshiping. Notice as he's, 
even though she didn't anticipate it, but he has moved her into the realm of the spirit and moving her to the issue of salvation, worshiping God, salvation. So Jesus responds, what? He says to the woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for such people the father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him, must worship in spirit and in truth. Okay, so now let's talk about, so now Jesus is gonna answer a place unto worship. But what Jesus lets her know is, is not about the place of worship, but the spirit of worship, okay? So he begins to say, a woman, believe me, an hour is coming, neither in this mountain, that is, the time will come when the worshipers won't be at Mount Gerizim and to the surprise of the Jews, the worship is not going to be in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus is speaking of a future time concerning himself after his death and resurrection from the dead. And this is what we will understand would be the period of the church age. That is from the moment that Jesus ascends into heaven to the moment that Jesus returns back to the earth to set up his kingdom. Okay. Basically. Oh, oh, oh. well, no, no, no. Let me just be more precise than that. From the moment Jesus ascends to the moment of the rapture of the church, this is the church age, but inclusive of that moment of the tribulation era. And then Jesus returns back to the earth to rule and to reign. And that would be a setting up of a third temple. Now, it, uh, actually, the, it'll be in number the fourth temple, fourth temple. But it'll be the third temple that is uh, sanctioned by God. But the literal number will be the fourth temple. Now, there will be a third temple that will be uh, brought up. The Jews will build, but it will not be sanctioned by God. That's in chapter Isaiah, what is it, 65, 66, something to that nature. But nevertheless, we don't want to get into that. When Jesus returns, sets up his kingdom, okay, then worship will be in Jerusalem again. But in between the time he ascends into heaven and until he comes back again, there will not be worship in neither Gerizim nor Jerusalem. Worship will be of something else. All right, but let's get into it. I should have made that digression, but nevertheless, okay? You worship what you do not know. Now Jesus clearly says to the Samaritan, your system of worship, your place of worship, Mount Gerizim, how you worship is wrong. Your system of worship is wrong. The Jewish system of worship and where the Jews are worshiping in Jerusalem is correct, is correct. For we worship, no, the we, the you is the Samaritans. I'm in verse number 22. 
You worship what you do not know, Samaritans. We worship, we Jews. Jesus is a Jew. She understands, she knows he is a Jew. We worship what we know. Our system of worship is correct. Our place of worship is correct. Even though there's going to come a time that we won't worship in Jerusalem, but the system that we did have is the correct system. So he has just told the Samaritans, since you wanted to know which is right, which is wrong, yours is wrong, ours is right. All right. But nevertheless, for salvation is from the Jews. Okay. And I, there's a lot that can be said about that statement. So just let me simply say it here, because literally you can do an entire teaching from that statement. Salvation has its origin from the Jews. God chose the Jewish people to preserve his word, to preserve his worship, to preserve his seed through whom the Messiah should come. The Messiah should come and die and be resurrected from the dead. The Messiah himself is a Jew. Salvation is of the Jews. Only way a person can be saved is by believing that Jesus, the Jew of Nazareth, Jesus, the Jew born of Abraham, son of David, that Jewish man, only faith in him can give salvation. And we've been talking about that all over John, faith in Jesus alone. And again, Jesus says what in the exclusive statement? I am the way I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the father, but by me, only by Jesus is there any salvation for salvation is from the Jews. So compile all of those statements that I just made to ultimately end in the person of the Jew, Jesus. God has given this system of worship and God has given this means of salvation. No other religious system, no other religious practice for salvation is from the Jews. No other religious religious way. Okay, enough of that, enough of that. But then Jesus continues to speak because remember he said, it's not about the place, it's about something else, the spirit of worship. But an hour is coming. You see, he's looking to a future time of worship. Worship not in a place. She was thinking what? Gerizim or Jerusalem. Not in a place the time is coming but the worship shall come in means and manner i'll talk about that but our and now is see note why is it now is with the presence of the messiah at that time you got it it's all about him it's all about faith in him Worshiping God by believing in the one whom God has sent. God has sent Jesus as the great propitiation. He has sent Jesus as the great Messiah and the great Savior for those who put faith in him. The time now is. It is not about where you worship, but in whom you believe in accomplishing that worship. It's about him, the Messiah. Okay, enough of that, enough of that, enough of that. The time now is 
when the true worshipers will not uh, uh, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And I basically explained all of that. In other words, not the place, not Garrison, not Jerusalem, which Jerusalem is right for the moment, but that started to break off even now. But it is about the Father desires worship in spirit. That is energized, directed, and influenced by the Holy Spirit. Faith in the Messiah Jesus. A purity of faith. A faith not in your works. A faith in not in what you do, but a faith in who you believe in. I believe in Jesus one who accomplishes my everything, my Lord, my Savior, my everything. The Father looks for such ones to worship him, who understand who his son is, why he has sent his son, and what his son has done. These are the true worshipers, the worshipers who worship God in and through Messiah Jesus himself. These are the people whom the Father is desiring worship. Not people going to a place, not people, and even for today, even though we come together for our building up, the Bible talks about going to church all the time. It is good. It is even necessary for the building up of the faith of the saints. Good. But we go there in order that we may worship our God through our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Okay, enough of that. This is the will of the father. And these are the people who he's seeking to worship him, who understand his plan of salvation, sending Jesus and all Jesus does. And in believing in him, you are a true worshiper of God. And then he says, for God is spirit. Now you have to stay in the context. He's not talking, he's talking about basically a spirit being. God is a spirit being. And as a spirit being, God, and not like an angel, not like an angel, but he's speaking of one of the characteristics of God, one of his divine attributes, omnipresent. And that's why God would say, what house can you build for me? Heaven is where I abode and the earth is just a place for my feet. How are you going to build me a house on little earth? I put my whole feet on the little earth. You going to build me a house? So God is omnipresent. You got it? And as God is a spirit omnipresent being, he has no set place. No set place in Gerizim. No set place in Jerusalem. Although we've talked about this in dealing with some of the Old Testament. God manifested, he localized his presence, he localized his presence in the temple, but that localized presence, God revealing, this is what we would call, slowing it down, the Shekinah glory of God, the light that manifested the presence of God between those two cherubims in the most holy place. Go look at the teaching that I did in the book of Exodus, okay? But that localized manifestation did not restrict God's being, his presence everywhere else. God just simply showed it right there, but he still remained omnipresent. For God is spirit, 
right? And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit creature, not defined or detained in a local place, place, local place. So those who worship him, worship him not so much in a local place, but in, in the how and the means through Jesus, the Messiah, through faith in Jesus, Jesus, whom God sent spirit and in truth. This is God's means and his ways of having people to worship him. How did I tell you to worship me? Through my son. For he who has the son has the father. But if you don't have the son, neither do you have the father. The only way you're going to worship the father is to worship the son, understand the work and the person of Jesus. Okay. And this is the truth of God. And God, therefore, as you understand these things and you practice these things, he receives your worship. All right. With that, 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming and he who is he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. OK, now we got to deal with that. So the woman was really dissatisfied with Jesus answer. And no doubt, you know, she wanted to, Jesus to take her side that worship should be at Mount Gerizim. But Jesus whole point was worship is not about the place. Worship is about the means through Christ Jesus. You worship the father in spirit and in truth. She didn't like that answer. She wanted Jesus to give her an answer. Choose Gerizim or Jerusalem. And so what did she do? She said, OK, fine. You didn't answer the question. Apparently, you don't know the answer. But guess what? I know that there is one, the Messiah who is coming, which lets you know the Samaritans believe in the coming Messiah, the anointed one. All right. And she says, which we know as the Christ, Messiah, Mashiach, Christ, Christos, same, anointed one. You just said the same thing, same title for Jesus, Christ, Messiah, anointed one. She said the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he's going to tell us everything that we need to know. Right? Okay, I didn't like your answer, Jesus, but the Messiah is coming. He'll set the thing straight. Jesus turned and said, woman, I am the Messiah. Now, that is one of the most direct uh, responses that we have in text thus far. Notice what I said in text thus far of Jesus simply saying point blank. I am the Messiah. And he gives it. He gives such a uh, 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 revelation to I, let me say it like this, like the Jew would think a filthy Samaritan woman. You give us such wonderful, salvific information. You are the Messiah. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus did not declare to be himself to be Messiah. He did. But to do, say so, so plain and simple. This is the first time we've seen it like that. In the text. All right. So Jesus announced the now to the woman, you're looking for the Messiah. The Messiah has come and is now talking to you. Uh, let's continue. At this point, 
his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, come and see, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. This is not the Christ, is it? All right. <laughs> all right. So now finally the disciples have returned. And remember how I said, you can see the divine hand of God in all of this. Jesus coming to the well at that particular time. He needs to go through Samaria and the disciples gone. So Jesus can have this conversation. Why? Look at the negativity of the disciples when they see Jesus speaking to this Samaritan woman. So what happened? The disciples came back. Notice, here, notice what the scripture says. They were amazed. He was speaking with a woman. And that's what I was trying to tell you guys. Rabbis in that day and time, it was not customary to speak to a woman in public. So when the disciples came back, remember the disciples always say, Rabbi, Rabbi, and you'll see them again say, Rabbi. But when they saw their rabbi speaking to a woman in public, they were like, what the world going on? This is uh, unusual. <laughs> <laughs> and then not only was a woman, a freaking Samaritan. That makes it all the worse. But nevertheless, even though they were shocked to see Jesus simply speaking to a woman, they didn't ask the woman. They didn't say to the woman in a negative way, what you want? What, what you here for? What you talking to him for? What do you seek? And that's what that text means. You're supposed to be talking to him here. What, what do you seek? And neither did they say to Jesus, why in the world are you speaking to a woman? We don't do that. And we definitely don't fool with Samaritans. So what's up with that? But nevertheless, they're understanding. He is the true teacher. He is the true Messiah and Christ. So they dared not say a single word. They didn't say nothing. But in all of the excitement, the woman has just received, remember, she's been elevated to the spiritual plane. And then Jesus has just told her he was the Messiah. She got so excited, or should I even say in my Southern way of saying it, which I never even use it, but I like the idea. She got plum excited. <laughs> she got so excited, she forgot why she went to the well in the first place. To draw water. <laughs> she left the well, left her watering pot, and you can see the woman going into town frantically uh, saying to the men, come and see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Now, what she's re referring to is Jesus spoke prophetically. You've had five husbands and the one that you have, you're living with now is not your husband. Now, she's speaking to that. This man has a prophetic gift. He can tell you all the things that you've ever done. That is, he said that about me. He can do supernatural things in that sense, in that limited sense. That, that's what you're saying, to get him out there, right? And then she says, in a negative sense. Now, here's what you got to catch. She says it in a negative sense, knowing that the Samaritans would not receive Jesus positive. Remember, Jesus is Jew and stuff like that. You got to keep all that in mind. But she's still trying to get them out there. She, She's crafty. That's what I'm trying to say. 
She's smart and she's crafty. She knew that if she just went into the town and says, I found the Messiah, y'all need to come and see him, that the people would go like, ah, oh, nah, 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 you ain't found him. But what she did was, this can't be the Messiah, could he? But you know what? He did tell me some stuff that I did. But no, 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 this can't be the Messiah. Y'all come check him out. I, I really don't think he is. Is he? So with that, she encouraged the people from the town to come out to evaluate Jesus for themselves. She was crafty. She wanted to get them out, but if she just came direct, she knew they wouldn't, they wouldn't go for it. But anyway, let's go back to the text. This couldn't be the Christ easy. Verse number 30, they went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, what rabbi? eat. <laughs> but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat. Did he? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. See the connection and to accomplish his work. Okay. So now let's go back. So now the woman is going into the town and they went out. Now you can see the woman has had a fruitful ministry, if you'll let me say it that way. She has had a great effect on the people of the town. So they heard what she had to say and they were now coming out to see Jesus, this man whom, whom this woman has said about. And is he not the Messiah? They want to see for themselves what is, what's going on here. In the meantime, the disciples were saying to Jesus, remember, he had came to the well. He was tired, thirsty, no doubt hungry. And so they began to urge Jesus to eat some food, to urge Jesus to eat some food. And Jesus simply responded to them that I have food to eat you don't know about. Now, Jesus does same thing that he does with the woman. And sad to say, the disciples are just as dull as the woman. As the disciples urged Jesus to eat physical food, Jesus says, I have food to eat, spiritual food that you do not know about. Now, the reason why you have to understand it when it says spiritual food, food nourishes, food satisfies. You have to remember that. You have to remember that as you deal with the remainder of what Jesus says. Food nourishes and it satisfies. And again, uh, the dullness of the disciples themselves. What did they say? Who brought them food? They looked around and said, ain't nobody brought him no food. No, you know, no food. No, they got no water. No, nothing like that. Who brought him some nourishment to eat? So they're just as dull in the physical as the Samaritan woman was, when Jesus spoke to her in the spiritual, she too was in the physical. And you see the same thing, even for Jesus' disciple. We are all the same. God has to bless us. God has to lift us up into the spirit of faith so that having eyes, we can see. Having ears, we can hear. And having hardened hearts, only God can soften it. We're all the same. There's no difference. Jew, Gentile, Samaritan. We're all the same. It takes an operation, a work of God on these deadness of ours, these dead souls 
of ours. Okay, and that's enough about that. So Jesus responded. Let me see where I am. Uh, my food, verse 34, is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish the work. Now, here's where we have to back up and look at the totality of the situation. And remember what I said to you about food. Food nourishes and food satisfies. OK, so in that same sense as physical food nourishes and satisfies the body in the spiritual sense, when Jesus does, he eats the food of the father, that the food of the father is the will of the father. That's the food that Jesus eats, the will of the father. And in doing eating the will food of the father, it satisfies him. That's why he says my food, what satisfies me, what nourishes me is to do the will of God, the one who sent me and accomplish his work. So what satisfies me? Not so much as the food to put in my mouth. Jesus has elevated it spiritually. What satisfies me is knowing that I have done the will of God. Are there some of you who are hungry? Are there some of you when doing the will of God is the only thing that satisfies you? It makes you feel complete. It gives you satisfaction when you know you have done the thing that is pleasing to God, when you have done what God has set for you to do. And this is what I'm trying to urge some of you have this same kind of food. I am satisfied when I do what God has sent me to do. And I know that experience. I know the feeling. Even after I do one of these videos, it is food. You feel satiated because you have done what God has sent you to do. But anyway, so that's Jesus's point in all of that. Not the food in the mouth, but the food to do what God has sent me to do and to accomplish the work. Now, what is the work? Let's back up again. Remember, we started all the way back. You need to go from Judea to Galilee, but I must pass through Samaria because there I will meet a Samaritan woman and there I will reveal to her I am the Messiah and there I will save her soul. This is to do the work of God. This is the food. This is what I must do. Accomplish. That's what I'm trying to say. His will. When we look at the evangel evangelistic effort of Jesus. And so you got to keep in mind too. You got to keep in mind. Go all the way back. When the woman went into the town, come, come see a man, come see a man. And they were coming to Jesus. So you have to keep that picture rolling in your mind. Do you see them? Do you see them? These tens and fifties, possibly hundreds of people. This woman has stirred up the town. And now look at them coming in droves to see Jesus. Is this man Messiah or not? Look at them sitting there, looking at him, listening to him. And what you think Jesus is talking about the weather? No, he's proclaiming to be the Messiah. One in whom salvation alone is found in. Keep that in your mind as Jesus eats this food. As Jesus does the will of the one who sent him. 
the will of the Father. Evangelism to save. Okay, but let's move on. 35. Remember that picture. Is it still rolling in your mind? Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and get and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Boy, I, I love it. Okay, let's bring it to a close, guys. So now, remember, you got the theater on in your mind. The woman has excited the town and in droves they are coming out. Notice now, Jesus has planted a seed into that woman and that seed has energized her and that seed has worked in her to bring those people out as they're coming out in numbers to see Jesus. And now notice, you're going to see Jesus. He says, well, do you not say there are yet four months, then the harvest come? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They are white for harvest. Now, even though Jesus is speaking in parabolic terms, that is, what happens? First, first is seed time. The first thing you do is plant the seed. However, once you plant the seed, it takes time before the plant to grow and all of that and for it to finally be ready for harvest. So notice what it says. There are yet four months. You plant the seed and only after four months, some period of time is the time for the harvest to come. Jesus has just planted a seed. He did the seed planting in the Samaritan woman. And notice what he's saying. Usually it takes time for a manifestation to come because of that. It takes time for the work. It takes time for the development. It takes time. But notice this energized seed, the Samaritan woman that Jesus planted has come already. It's not four months later. It's not five months later. She is immediately returning with a harvest of people. And that's why Jesus says, look up, look up for the field is already white. White means it's the harvest time. White means, don't you see all of these Samaritans, you, my disciples, took a negative approach when you came and saw me speaking to the woman, speaking to this Samaritan. You didn't understand. I was planting a seed looking for a harvest. Now I say to you, my disciples, look up. Look and see what this woman has done. Look at the possible tens, fifties, hundreds of people she are now she is now bringing to me. Usually, you have to wait for the time of spiritual development, the time for spiritual harvest. But this woman, energized by me, is acting already. And now, even though I just planted the seed, the harvest 
has already come. Lift up your eyes. All of these Samaritans, the harvest is before you. It's time to go to work. Now, the work is not in the planting the seed. The work now is to harvest, harvest the fruit that has come from the seed, the seed that Jesus has planted. So watch what he continues to say. Already, notice, already he who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. And this is the work that they will be engaged. Jesus planted the seed. Now you got all of these people coming and now you will have both Jesus and his disciples working in the harvest to prepare these people for eternal life. Prepare them for faith in Jesus. Teach them Jesus is the Messiah. Trust and believe in him. And in this, you will have eternal life. This is the great harvest. He who reaps is receiving wages. Now, the whole idea of receiving wages is a beautiful thing because this here, this makes clear that God is acknowledging uh, a payment, so to speak. God will reward you. God will reward the seed planter. God will reward the seed, the, the harvester of that seed. In other words, let me say it in a way that you understand it. Let's say for say, let's say for say, I speak a word. I speak a word to some person or persons, or maybe you speak a word of God to them and they are not saved. You got it. You are planting a seed. Now, let's say for say, they meditate on these things, kind of like Nicodemus. And we saw that in Nicodemus At Nicodemus, Jesus planted the seed. But Nicodemus did not come to faith immediately. Really, Nicodemus came to faith near the end of Jesus's life. But the point is that had to grow. It had to come to a point of harvest. Coming to faith is harvest. So I plant a seed or you plant a seed. Time go by. Things are on people's heart. God puts it on their heart. God works on their heart. And then someone else come and give another word. And when they give another word concerning Jesus, the individual responds to salvation. But they're not responding simply to their, their preaching or teaching of the gospel. They're responding to a culmination. That is, from the moment that seed was planted, in the ground and started to germinate and began to grow up until it was ready for harvest up until that person would say, you know what? I believe in Jesus. I believe he is the son of God taking human flesh, died for my sins and rose from the dead. I am now ready to believe. I am now ready to be harvested. And another person may actually bring them to faith. But there is the joint participation on the person who initially planted the seed and the person who finally brought them to faith, harvested the crop. And that's what Jesus is talking about in that parabolic sense. OK, but let's go back. Let's go back. He who 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 reaps receives wages and is gathering fruit for eternal. So this is a person who brings the person to salvation. OK. So that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice 
together. That is, notice what it says, he who sows the initial planter of the seed, the initial preacher of the gospel, the one who brought it to him initially, even though that person didn't see them get saved, you got it? But later on, somebody came, preached it again, spoke about it again, and they responded, that individual responded and got saved. That the one who sows initial, the one who reaps, the one who finally brings that individual to faith. Nevertheless, they both rejoice together. They both are rewarded from God and they both rejoice in, a, in participating of the salvation of another person. Both the sower and the reaper. The one who began to do it, who began the preaching and the one who ended the preaching when the person finally got saved. And now Jesus simply says, for in this case is true, one sows and another reaps. And now you guys should understand that one starts it and another finishes it and the person is saved. But one initially preaches the gospel. They don't respond, but later on they do when another person responds, the sower and the reaper. I sent you, verse 38, to reap that for which you have not labored. Now, this, we can see this right now, right in the immediate context right now. Jesus did the labor. Why? Remember, they were going into town to buy the food. Jesus spoke to that woman and Jesus planted the seed. But now, what do we have? Great number of Samaritans coming out to hear the gospel hear the gospel and are going to believe in the gospel. You're going to see that at the very end. They're going to believe and the disciples are going to participate in this work. So Jesus, they are now, I sent you to reap for which you're not living. So they're going to participate in the reaping of the seed, Samaritan woman, that Jesus sowed. Others have labored and you entered into their labor. Now, so that's the immediate context, but there is a more general context as well. And it applies just the same. When Jesus came, he chose his apostles and he chose some disciples, okay, to represent him. They took that gospel message that Jesus put into their mouth, that Jesus is the Messiah. And they took it throughout the lands of Israel. They, that's what they did. They bear witness to Jesus and they preached this. And so therefore, Jesus says, I sent you out, but he says to enter other men's labors. Now, the understanding of this is you were not the first one. You did not initially plant this seed. The prophets did. Moses did. Jeremiah, Elijah, and on and on and on. And that's why he says, and you have entered into their works. So, uh, immediate context, Jesus with the Samaritan woman and they assisting him with the rest of the people. More general context, Jesus sending the, his disciples to work in work that had already began with others before them, namely the prophets. Okay. All right. Now let's bring the section to a close. 39. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things that I have done. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. 
many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the savior of the world. Boy, don't that make you want to cry? But anyway, so from that city, remember now, all those people gathered around Jesus and they are Samaritans. And remember the relationship that the Samaritans had with the Jews. Great antagonism. You know, Jesus didn't hate anybody, but you know, speaking general term, they didn't fool with one another. But nevertheless, the Samaritans began to do what? Believe in him. This woman herself planted seeds. And now this woman can see those seeds being harvested. But anyway, the Samaritans came to faith in Jesus because of what the woman said, how she stirred him up. He prophesied about me. He told me all the things that I've ever done. But when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they believed and they start and they asked Jesus to stay with him two days. Now, this is the part that is so beautiful. Where is all of the disagreement? Where is now all of the antagonism? And where is all of the we don't fool with Jews and Jews don't fool with us? In Christ Jesus, we are one. And oh, oh, I'm going to say this. I need to say this. If they can put aside the antagonism, which is what Jesus wanted them to do in the first place. He is not the savior of the Jews. He is the savior of all who believe. And therefore, all of that antagonistic crap, all of that division is put aside. And we need to learn that today. If you call yourself a Christian, it doesn't matter whether you are a black Christian or a white Christian or a Mexican Christian, a Japanese Christian and own China. It doesn't matter about what you may call yourselves. In the end, we have one foundational thing in common. We are Christians and we need to get rid of all of this racist crap and all of this division. And, and I'm sick of that. I'm sick of that. In some places you see it. In some places you see they work their way through it. But even still, we have black churches. We got a white church. We get, if they can get it together, what about us? Make that one of your priority points to understand and see yourself as a Christian and make yourself racially blind colorblind. We are all one in Christ. That's one of the themes in the book of Philippians to be one in Christ. Okay. Enough said about that. So they were asking Jesus to stay for him two days and look at the beauty of the thing. And Jesus stayed with them two days. What you got to understand is this. Jesus's primary ministry was unto the Jews. Okay. Remember, he had been sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But God wanted him to work this thing out, to participate in what he is doing here so that it will be seen. He is not the Messiah of the Jews only, but he is the Messiah of God for everybody, everybody, Jew, Samaritan, and even Gentile. And you go to go back and check out that little study I did in Matthew, but not right now. But anyway, so there's, there's many more believe in him because of his word. Now, let me come in on that. 
you cannot help but notice the contrast. When, when he spoke to the woman, he did a little prophetic utterance to her. He let her know about, I know your past life, five husbands, and you're shacking now. He did that. That was all he did, and he only did that with the woman. The woman took that as testimony and went down to the Samaritan and told them about that. But then she said, but come and see. See and hear him for yourself. When the Samaritans came to Jesus, listen to me closely. He performed no miracle, but yet they believed in him. Now contrast that with Jesus's activity among the Jews, constantly performing signs and wonders. Notice, even as he was coming from the first, his first Passover in Jerusalem, that is, his, since he's uh, into his messianic ministry, performing signs and wonders at the Passover. And remember what it said? But Jesus knew the heart of men. He knew they didn't really believe. He knew they had superficial belief, even though he was doing so many signs and wonders. Notice, you don't see this done here. All you see Jesus doing is speaking. And what was the end result? They believed. So let me simply say it this way. You don't need signs and wonders. The word is sufficient of himself. The testimony of Jesus is sufficient of itself. If it comes to a point where you need signs and wonders to believe, you don't believe. True faith is of the heart and not of simply signs and wonders. The signs and wonders is simply to attest. Believe what I'm saying. It's not get hooked on the signs and wonders, but believe what I'm saying. So they listened, these Samaritans, to the words of Jesus without signs and wonders. And look at what they said. We believe because of what we've heard, not because of some signs, but because we have heard for ourselves. We've heard him speak. We've heard him teach. And we believe he indeed is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, that's a beautiful thing. In the absence of signs and wonders, they believed. 43. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen, watch it, watch it, all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now watch how John ends this. Okay, so now he stayed with the Samaritans two days. They asked for two days. He stayed for two days. Wonderful Savior. Then Jesus said, okay, it's time for us to go where we were intended to go initially. That is into Galilee. And then he said, now notice this, it takes a negative turn from Jesus's mouth. With Samaritans, you have what? A positive, positive. They came, they listened, and they believed. And now notice when Jesus gets back to his own and preparing to go back to his own, the Jews, now it's turning negative. So as he gets ready to go into Galilee, what does he say? A prophet is not without honor except in his own country. In other words, there's a comparison. There's a contrast. 
Notice how he is welcomed and loved among the Samaritans. And we believe this one is the savior. But when he gets ready to go back to his own hometown, Jesus, the prophet, even though he has done many signs and wonders. Look at the very end of 45. These same people in Galilee were at the feast, the Passover, where Jesus did the signs and the wonders. He did them, but notice what Jesus said. And yet this same prophet who did the same signs and wonders will not be received by his own. Anywhere else he's received. Namely, in Samaria, in the Samaritan city, received, celebrated, appreciated, loved, and believed in. But he went, but when he goes back to his own, even though they receive him, it's superficial. Why? Jesus says, in the end, these very ones who saw my miracles, who saw the signs, will reject me, unlike the Samaritans who basically didn't see any miracles and signs, but they received me. And what was the testimony of the Samaritans? We believe for ourselves. <laughs> All right, guys, thanks for joining me in that very lengthy teaching of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. And once again, let me say to you, if you can say, if you say, Pastor Lee, thank you for these studies. I enjoy these studies. You open my heart, open my mind, and I truly appreciate it. Then allow me to encourage you to say thank you by supporting this ministry. You guys know about time and resources that it takes to do anything. If your heart indeed has been touched and your mind open to the truth of the scriptures, then help me and support me. There is a link in the description that shows how you can do that. Okay, enough of that. Now, thanks again, guys, for joining me. I truly enjoy, I always enjoy my teaching of the woman at the well, and I hope you enjoyed it too, and how God has determined salvation for all who believe in his son, Jesus. All right, but join me as we end chapter four, the next time we get here and we deal with the healing of a nobleman's son, and you begin to see the contrast that we were saying about the Samaritans. The Samaritans heard his word and believed, and you're gonna see a rebuke that Jesus is gonna give to a Jewish man when he says, except you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the contrast would be even more evident. But anyway, enough of that. Won't get into it right now. Join me again next time. See you then.